Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello and welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. This is our last episode on why we struggle so much as people who've left high demand religion or people who live in Western society or especially Americans. Why do we struggle so much to rest? Why do we feel anxious? Why do we get antsy? Why do we feel guilty? Why do we feel ashamed? Why do we have a hard time sleeping? Why can't we let ourselves play? Why can't we just let ourselves enjoy being and existing? Why do we feel like we need to always be doing or that we need to earn the ability to rest and relax and play? In part one, we talked about internalized capitalism. We talked about this idea that Good people are successful. This is a puritanical idea and how that has been passed down through the generations, particularly in American society. And so we've equated morality and worthiness with achievement and with being financially successful and with having something to show for our time. We talked about in the second part how our nervous system works and how we can actually get stuck in the sympathetic nervous system where we feel like we're in fight or flight all of the time and we're waiting for the next danger. This is especially true for those of us who have some childhood trauma. Perhaps we got stuck in a cycle where we were always waiting for our joy to be taken or we were told that the second coming was coming really soon and not to enjoy life too much because life was going to get really difficult and there were going to be wars and rumors of wars and all of this struggle and our nervous systems were always on high alert trying to make sure we didn't sin so we wouldn't be burned with the bad people when Jesus came because he was going to come like a thief in the night. And so our nervous systems maybe got stuck in fight or flight and we find it really difficult to rest and to calm now because we've become used to and comfortable with being stuck in this cycle of adrenaline and cortisol and waiting for bad things to happen. Last episode, we talked about anxious overachievement and how some of us were conditioned to believe that our value as a person came from our achievements and the ways we made our family look good or the ways we made our religion look good or we just got addicted to that high of getting that praise and that recognition that came from achieving something. And we find it really difficult to stop because our self is attached to what we achieve. And in this episode, we're actually going to talk about how we use busyness as a way to numb and avoid our big, scary emotions. 
Now, when we rest, we experience quiet. You know that time right before bed or when we're just lounging outside in the hammock, looking up at the clouds or allowing ourselves to just sit and think and daydream. Those are all quiet times. Resting usually involves quiet to a certain extent. And when we experience quiet, it can feel really uncomfortable to some of us because it makes us more aware of what's going on inside of our bodies and our minds. Our bodies aren't moving. Our attention isn't drawn to something outside of us. We're not engaged with our phones or with our other devices or with our laptops. We are allowing ourselves to in that quiet space where we're not actively doing something, we become more aware that we're in a body. We become more embodied. And for some of us that are storing a lot of trauma and emotion inside of our body, that feels really scary. If you find that you are busy all of the time, It may be some of the things we've talked about in previous episodes, but it might be that you're using it as a way to run away from and avoid big emotions, either because you don't know what to do with the big emotions or because you're worried that if you allow yourself to feel some of those big, scary things under the surface, like grief or like anger or like sadness or even fear, if you let yourself feel those, you're worried that it will become this big void that you'll fall down a rabbit hole and you'll never escape. Now, before we go any further in this episode, I have a quick and easy ask. If you feel this podcast is helping you understand and accept yourself better, and if you feel these resources should be amplified so that more people have access to them as they deconstruct high-demand religion and family trauma, please take a couple of short minutes and head over to emancipateyourmind.org and make a $10 donation. It is so easy and it's tax deductible in the United States. Go over to emancipateyourmind.org. The donation area is on the right-hand side at the top of the page under the words support the podcast and give a gift. Click the monthly donation button if you'd like to automatically fund the research and broadcast each month so we can make sure no person goes through religious deconstruction without emotional and mental support. Now, you may be wondering, am I one of these people that uses busyness as a way to avoid emotion? I wasn't sure if the answer was yes or no when I first started doing this work, but I didn't know if I was using my busyness as a way to escape or to numb. Now, these questions that come from clinical psychologist Andrea Bonoir really helped me kind of zero in on when I was using busyness as a way to escape or to numb feelings. And For those of you listening that are like, ah, it's no big deal to numb feelings, there is definitely a time and a place to choose to numb. You can do that. You can make a choice to numb for a certain time and in a certain way if your nervous system needs a break, and then you can come back to your emotions and take care of them at a later time. But we know from the research that long-term, we can't selectively numb our emotions, that if we're numbing things that feel difficult, And for those of us deconstructing high-demand religion, these are things like grief, anger, resentment, fear. 
If we're trying to escape those emotions because they feel really uncomfortable, we can do that for a short time to give ourselves a break, to allow our nervous systems to get a little bit of a breather and a rest. But we have to come back to the work of working through those emotions or otherwise what ends up happening is we end up numbing the things we're wanting to experience, things like love and connection and peace and calm and joy. We can't selectively numb emotions. So when we can deal with our uncomfortable emotions, we actually give ourselves more capability and more permission to experience the feelings that many of us want to experience, all of those yummy feelings like peace and joy and love and connection. So we have to exercise those emotional muscles. We have to be willing to face what we're feeling and practice working through those things so that we have the capability to feel a full range of emotions. Now, the cool thing is, is the more that I work through my fear, my grief, my sadness, my anger, my resentment, my jealousy, all those things that we're told are like nasty emotions we shouldn't feel, the more I allow myself to work through those things, the less of them exist in my body. The less of them are hanging out inside of me just waiting to be triggered because I've already listened to them. They've delivered their message. And because they delivered their message, they have retreated. They've, they have left. There's no reason for it to hang around anymore. It did what it was supposed to do. It delivered the message about what's going on inside of me, what I experienced and what I need and want to feel safe going forward in the future. So the more we can give time to working through these big emotions, holding them, validating them, figuring out what they need from us in the future to feel safer and to feel like they can trust us to drive our lives forward in ways that feel good for us, the less they hang around waiting to be triggered again in the future. So we experience less of them and less intense versions of them going forward in the future. Because what happens is if I'm not dealing with my anger, stuffing it inside of my body, and I'm trying to numb it and pretend it's not there, but the next time someone does something that triggers that anger, I'm not just dealing with what's happening in the moment. I'm dealing with the whole history of every time this has happened or something similar to it has happened in the past. And so not only is that emotion coming up right now in the moment, it is triggering my whole history of that emotion that I haven't dealt with. And so it comes out big. Sometimes it comes out in scary ways. And because that's happened in the past, we feel like, oh, anger is too big and it's too scary and it makes me do crazy things. So I can't feel that. And we try to numb. And one of the ways we try to numb is by being busy. So Andrea says we can ask ourselves these three questions to figure out, am I doing that? Am I numbing? Am I trying to keep a lid on this Pandora's box of all of these difficult and uncomfortable emotions that are hidden inside of my body, all of this unprocessed trauma that I'm trying not to look at, that I'm trying not to acknowledge? Am I using busyness as that lid to like hold it down? She says you can ask yourself, does your busyness feel like you're running away from something instead of running towards something? 
So do you feel like you're running away from something? Are you keeping super busy so you don't have to sit with something scary or so you don't have to confront something? The next one is, do you feel anxious or uncomfortable when there isn't a task immediately in front of you? I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You sit down on the couch, there's nothing else to do, and you feel yourself start to feel anxiety. You get jittery, you get fidgety, you feel uncomfortable, you can't sit still, your mind races, and before you know it, you do the third thing, which is when you have a few hours of unstructured alone time, do you automatically try to fill it with distractions? So if you have kind of an unhealthy relationship with the quiet, if when you're in the quiet, you feel uncomfortable or unsafe, and if you don't have a task to do, do you feel lost or anxious? And when that happens, do you end up finding something to do to keep yourself busy? All of those are indicators that you might be using busyness as a way to numb some uncomfortable feelings. Now, like all of the patterns we talk about on this podcast, this does not make you broken in any way, shape, or form. You developed this pattern and it served you very well. Otherwise, you wouldn't still be using it. This allowed you to continue to function in life, keep yourself safe, and arrive here where you are today. Now, the only reason it's become a problem is because now you're tired, you're overwhelmed, and you feel burnt out, which is why you're listening to this podcast in the first place. Otherwise, you would have skipped ahead. You wouldn't be listening. Or you know someone that's going through this and you care about them and you want to help them. But this is how it got started. All of us experience overwhelm to our nervous system from time to time. Sometimes we go through stressful or traumatic events. Our nervous system gets hit. We have things coming at us very quickly and we feel stuck in our sympathetic nervous system. Now, here in the United States, we're a society that celebrates stoicism. And just to clarify what stoicism is, stoicism is choosing what we feel. It's choosing what we think is appropriate to feel what is productive to feel, and what is not productive. But remember how we talked earlier about how you can't selectively numb emotions. We can't say, okay, joy, love, calm, contentment, peace, excitement. You guys are all okay. I'm allowed to feel you, but sorry, fear, sadness, grief, jealousy, rage. You're not invited to the party. I don't feel you you're not allowed to live here. That's not how it works. We experience a full range of emotions. And when we banish some of the emotions, we dull or banish all of the emotions. That's how we get into this dissociated, disembodied state where we feel numb all the time or where we don't feel like we know who we are or what we want or what we need, when we have a hard time even labeling our emotions, that's how that happens, is there were some emotions that were considered not useful or shameful or not valuable by the society that we grew up in. So whether it was American society in general, or it was like Southern society or Northern society, or 
It could have even been even smaller, like the way our collective community, what they valued in our religion, or even down to our families. We were conditioned in all of those ways. So our communities told us these are the things we value, these are the emotions we value, and these are the ones that are bad and they have no use. And so what we did is we have judgments about what it's okay to feel and what it's not okay to feel. And we try to discard feelings that we deem as useless or that we deem evil even. Now, I'm sure you're aware of this, but all of us numb. We all have numbing behaviors that we engage in when our nervous system is in overwhelm. And we live in a society that shames some numbing behaviors. I'm sure you can think of some right off the top of your head. What are some behaviors that people engage in when things are not going well for them, when they're overwhelmed, that society condemns? Some of the top ones that come to mind for me are like drugs, alcohol, um, unsafe sex practices, overeating, oversleeping. These are some of the things that we engage in that society often shames. And we call those people weak or out of control or evil a lot of times in our society. But we celebrate other numbing behaviors. And I think those of us who engage in those behaviors don't realize we're numbing because we get praised for those behaviors a lot. And these are things like overworking, being overly busy, even perfectionism to a certain extent, overworking out, over-controlling our eating. So things that help us fit the values and the ideals of our communities are typically praised as numbing behaviors and those that bring us further away are shamed. So a lot of times what we end up doing is we will experience this emotional overwhelm. We need a break from it for a minute. We need to just hit the pause button so that we can calm our nervous system down. If we don't know how to bring our parasympathetic nervous system online, or if there are just so many things hitting us so quickly that we just need a pause, we usually reach for a numbing mechanism. And I actually have an episode on numbing. Please go back and listen to it. If this is striking a chord with you and you haven't heard that, go back and listen to the numbing episode. It's from 2021. And it talks about what numbing does for us, how it helps us and hinders us, and how we can actually choose to push pause on our emotions for a bit so that we can calm our nervous system down. But we have to choose also to set a time limit on that of when we're going to re-engage. Otherwise, we fall into that pattern of pausing and then eventually stuffing that emotion and not re-engaging with it so that it can deliver its message and release. But what ends up happening is we reach for a numbing behavior and many of us will try to first reach for a behavior that is tolerated or celebrated. And then if that doesn't work, a lot of times then we will spiral into behaviors that are shamed. Now, when we get addicted to being busy as a way to avoid difficult emotions, there are lots of negative effects. And we talked about this in the episode on the sympathetic nervous system. So what happens is when we're busy, we're stressed. 
And a certain amount of stress is good for our system, but when we're stuck in stress, we have elevated cortisol levels, our blood pressure is high, we have extra sugar and fat in our bloodstream, our digestive system doesn't work properly, our executive function doesn't work properly, so we might have brain fog, we might have a hard time problem solving, we might have a hard time really sorting through everything we need to do and making plans. And our libido might be down in the toilet. We have a hard time with our sex lives. We're exhausted all the time. We might feel depressed. We might feel anxious. We talked about all of that in that episode. What also happens whenever we're stuck in a busyness cycle is we lose connection with our inner voice. When there's a lot of noise, and that's what happens when we're busy, is we have all this noise It's like our mind is just swirling with all the things we need to do. It's really hard to hear our inner voice telling us what we want, what we need, what we value, where our boundaries are. And I don't know if you've ever tried to carry on a conversation in the middle of a crowded room with maybe music booming or whatever. It's really, really hard to connect because it's so hard to hear. You're trying to read lips, but sometimes you read them wrong, and sometimes you don't know what they say, and you know, you're yelling, What? What? And you're trying really hard to connect with that person. That's what it's like to try to connect with our own inner voice when we're drowning in to do's and drowning in this overwhelm of work and things we have to do. Now, when we neglect our inner voice, we also end up neglecting to set boundaries because we don't know what our boundaries are, and our relationships become distant, and we start to feel lonely and disconnected. So being really busy often leads us to feeling isolated from others, but also from ourselves. This is why you hear so many therapists and coaches talk about meditation, talk about mindfulness practices. Because there are huge benefits in the quiet. Recently, I was listening to Glennon Doyle and she was talking about how it really doesn't matter if you engage in like formal meditation. The benefits come from just sitting with yourself in the quiet and learning to tolerate the discomfort of the silence. Learning that you're not in danger when you sit with yourself and your emotions, that your emotions can't hurt you, that you are strong enough to hear them out, to allow them to give you the messages they came to give you, and that they'll release. Now, some of the benefits of quiet are mental clarity. A lot of noise keeps us from thinking deeply. I mean, think about it. Your focus is ping-ponging all over the place. I don't know how many of you have sat to meditate for the very first time, and within seconds, you're thinking about your to-do list, you're wondering if you turned off the toaster, you're thinking about your calendar, and if you put that thing on your calendar, and all the things you need to do that day, and your thoughts swirl. But what happens is as you practice quiet... We become more comfortable. We learn to focus on one thought at a time and follow it to its conclusion instead of jumping from thought to thought in what experts call monkey mind. That feeling when you get quiet and suddenly your mind gets really crazy and you start having lots of unrelated thoughts and it just feels like a ping pong ball is bouncing around in your head, that's called monkey mind. 
You're jumping from branch of thought to branch of thought, and many times they're unrelated. Learning to sit with the quiet allows us to begin to first feel safe in the quiet and then begin to unravel the cacophony of thoughts. And we begin to just notice them. Oh, there we go. There's a thought. And we notice it and we let it float away. We notice another thought and we let it float away. We learn to detach ourselves from the thoughts and just notice them as a third party observing. And we let it just kind of float across the screen of our mind without feeling like we have to grab onto that branch of thought and just practicing noticing and becoming aware of what we're thinking without feeling like we need to grab onto it gives us more control to choose one thought follow it to its conclusion and what happens is something really cool at the conclusion of that one thought when it feels like it's resolved in that brief split second after it feels like it's resolved we have peace We have silence in our head for just a moment. It might be a very brief moment, but we have silence. And there's something very calming about that. In fact, as we practice this, we learn to engage our parasympathetic nervous system. And as we engage that, we increase something called vagal tone, which is the ability to regulate emotion. It's the ability to kind of move with the flow and move from states of stress to calm more easily. So sitting with the quiet isn't just about being able to be still. In fact, you don't even have to do regular meditation to enjoy these benefits, just sitting alone in the quiet. Whether that's in the car, in the shower, with your morning coffee, out in nature, or in your closet, wherever you find quiet, learning to sit there allows you to focus your thoughts and also build the tone in your parasympathetic nervous system so that you can calm more quickly. Now, all of this is going to give you enhanced concentration. The more we practice recognizing and following one thought at a time, the more we become able to discard distractions and concentrate more deeply. Now, I know that there are those of you listening who've been diagnosed with ADHD and you're thinking, I'm not capable of concentrating more deeply. It's just who I am. I have clients who practice mindfulness, who practice meditation, and it does increase your ability to concentrate for longer periods of time. It allows you to discard intrusive thoughts. It allows you to discard the anxiety that comes along with your thoughts hopping all over the place. Does it take practice? Sure. Is it likely harder for you with ADHD? Likely, but it's not impossible. So if you hear yourself discounting this and just saying, no, I have a busy mind. It's just who I am. I'm not capable. Challenge that thought. Give yourself permission to challenge that and say, well, what if I was able to experience mindfulness for two seconds? Could I make that three seconds? 
And what you're doing is you're retraining your ability to concentrate. You're retraining your system to be able to just focus on one thing at a time, even if it's only for a couple of seconds. All of that adds up and allows you to begin to retrain the way that your brain works. Now, as we get this mental clarity and this enhanced concentration, we begin to hear a clearer inner voice. So once we've learned to unravel our thoughts, we'll begin to hear our own inner voice louder and clearer because it's not being drowned out by all of the noise. This helps us more easily discern our personal values, our needs, and our wants, which allows us to make better decisions for ourselves and set healthy boundaries. We can't set boundaries until we know what our boundaries are, and we can't know what our boundaries are. We can't know what we value. We can't know where we want to spend our time. We can't know what's okay with us and what's not okay with us and why and what we would like to see happen and what we need to feel safe and what we want in our lives. We can't know any of that until we can hear our voice and we can ask ourselves questions and we can listen to the answers that bubble up to the surface. But that can't happen as long as there's noise all over the place. And we can't sort through the noise if we're not comfortable being in the quiet where we can do that. And then we enjoy more mindfulness. So from this place, as we get better able to sit in the quiet, we're better able to hear our thoughts. We're better able to just observe them instead of latching onto them. What happens is we begin to feel more confident handling what we discover in the quiet. We get to practice with that. We get to say, oh, I see sadness. Why do you feel sad? What's going on? And we sit with that emotion and let it talk to us. And we show it gratitude for communicating with us. And we ask it what it needs to feel safe. We do that parts work that we talked about a few episodes ago. We talk to these parts of ourselves. We let them tell us what they know about us. We thank them for taking the time. To do that, we build trust with these parts. And as we do this, we build trust with ourselves that we can handle our big emotions. And that allows us to feel more comfortable and more confident in the quiet. And as we do this, we're better able to settle into and appreciate the present moment. Because I don't have to be afraid of what happens right now. Because I'm not so busy trying to avoid the big feelings of what happened in the past or the fear of what might happen in the future. I'm not so busy trying to protect myself from any of those things that might come up. And I'm able to just be. And in this state, we're going to enjoy more profound thoughts. Because in this state, when our parasympathetic nervous system is turned on, more deep breathing and our heart rate has slowed and all of the cortisol and adrenaline has drained from our limbs, guess what else turns on? Our prefrontal cortex goes back online because when we're in our sympathetic nervous system, our amygdala signals to the rest of the body to shut down everything that is not needed for survival. So we start directing energy away from our prefrontal cortex, which is that huge human part of our brain that makes our noggins so big. It directs energy away from our prefrontal cortex 
and towards the organs and limbs that are needed for fight or flight. But once we go to a state of calm, our prefrontal cortex comes back online. And our prefrontal cortex is in charge of executive function. This is what allows us to have more profound thoughts, to think more deeply, to be open to new ideas and ways of looking at the world. The prefrontal cortex is what's in charge of being flexible in our thinking and connecting dots between what we already know and new information. And this is the part of our brain that is in charge of changing our ideology and adapting our behavior and our knowledge when new information comes in. When we're in fight or flight, we're not able to make those connections and we're more rigid in our thinking because we're in survival mode. When we're in safe mode, we're able to digest. This isn't just food we're digesting. We're able to digest new information as well. And that allows us to evolve and grow in our thinking. When we're in this space, we experience more creativity because we're open to new ideas. We can problem solve from different directions so we can get innovative. And we're also able to engage in more critical thinking. And just think about a person in this place of greater personal clarity and problem solving that allows us to better communicate with others and to resolve conflicts, and that helps us build healthier relationships. So the quiet isn't just about calming our thoughts. It does all of these beneficial things for us that give us more of what we want, more creativity, more peace and calm, more ability to connect with others, ways to problem solve the big problems in our life. And it allows us to be present, which when you learn about mindfulness, being present where joy is. Anxiety is often in the future. Grief is often in the past. But here in the present, we experience excitement, joy, peace, calm. So allowing ourselves to get comfortable with the quiet gives us all of these benefits. Now, if you've been listening and you're thinking to yourself, how do I even begin? I am so uncomfortable with the quiet. Here are some ideas. I know that you might be feeling like you're afraid to open up to feeling things to being quiet and allowing yourself to feel things because if you do that, you're so afraid that you will open up this big chasm and you'll be swallowed whole, never to be seen again. That once you start to feel, you'll never be able to get out. I get that in the past when your feelings have been triggered, it's triggered not just that feeling in the present, but any of those feelings that have been stored away in your body. When someone triggers a big emotion right now in the present, Your subconscious goes and looks for events in the past that remind you of that. Remember, your amygdala is looking for danger. And if it senses, oh, this is like that thing that happened to me that made me feel threatened, it's going to pull up those memories and any stuffed emotion or trauma that is associated with it. So when we haven't taken time to feel through our feelings, 
sometimes really big emotions come up that feels really scary. And we think that that's what anger feels like all the time. We don't realize that anger can have a voice that sounds just like the one I'm using right now. Literally someone who has worked through a lot of their anger can be like, oh, well, that kind of frustrates me because frustration is mild anger. And they might be able to say, hey, I don't like it when you do that. That really frustrates me. In this voice, they're feeling the same emotion, but it's not to the same magnitude because they're only dealing with the anger of this moment. They're not dealing with this anger in this moment and how you reminded them of something a family member did whenever they were a teenager and how that reminded them of something another family member did earlier and how this was a pattern in their family. No, they've worked through a lot of that. And so we're just dealing with the anger right now, not a lifetime worth of anger. So if you've had experiences with feelings in the past that felt really big and overwhelming, it's often because in those moments you were triggering not just the moment, but years worth of that feeling and years worth of a similar experience from your past. Know that your feelings as you work through them will become less intense, more manageable, and they'll last a shorter amount of time. Feelings are like a wave. They come, they wash over you when we let them, when we don't thought stop them. They come, they wash over you, they deliver their message, and then they recede. It's only when we thought stop them and stuff them that they don't go away. Often what we do is we try so hard to resist an emotion because it's uncomfortable that we actually make it stay longer than it would if we would just let it wash over us work with us, tell us what it needs to tell us, and let it recede. Because we're resisting so hard, it actually stays around longer, sometimes years longer. So as we work with our emotions, as we work with these different parts of ourselves, they don't feel the need to scream as loud or as long because they've been welcomed, they've been dealt with, their concerns have been heard. And so they peacefully go back into the background, or fade altogether. Now, some of these pieces of ourselves may take a little bit more work because they have built up trauma over time, but some of them just need some short acknowledgement, and then they feel like they've delivered their message and they recede. So if you're worried about that, know that that is a common worry, and that as you practice feeling This is going to diminish and get more manageable. And if you need help, please seek help, whether it's a coach or a therapist, a group of some sort, find a place where you can get help when you're first wading into feeling these big emotions. If you're worried you won't ever get back out again, make sure there's a safe someone that can throw you a life ring that can sometimes help you feel a little safer as you dip your toe into feeling again. You all know this. I highly recommend finding a therapist or coach that can hold space for you. That is what they do. You're capable of doing the work, but sometimes we're so scared of the work. We just need to know someone is there and they can throw us a lifeline and we're not going to have to do it alone. You're capable of doing it, but if you're feeling afraid of it, 
get yourself a helper. Get yourself a lifeguard as you swim into the ocean of emotion. The second thing I would recommend is start small. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I set a goal, I set a monster goal. I think the first time I decided to meditate like 12 years ago because it was something my therapist was recommending, I think I set the goal to like meditate for 10 minutes. I thought that that was a small goal. That was way too big for me. I had so much going on in my head and in my heart and in my body that my emotions and my thoughts were just swirling all over the place. And I found it was helpful. I started meditation with 30 seconds. Could I just tolerate the quiet? Could I sit with myself for 30 seconds? And I started doing that twice a day. So 30 seconds in the morning, 30 seconds at night. And I gradually upped it until it was like a minute. I would recommend starting with a minute. But if you need to, start smaller. Help your nervous system know that you're not going to die. So if you need 10 seconds, if you need 30 seconds, make that your goal. Give yourself a goal that you know you can be successful with. So maybe you're telling yourself, I'm highly uncomfortable with the quiet. I hate the quiet. It makes me feel queasy inside. It makes my skin crawl. Maybe that's how you feel about it. But you want to set yourself up for success. So you tell yourself, okay, I just have to sit with the quiet for 10 seconds or 30 seconds or a minute. And you show yourself that you're capable of sitting with the quiet for that time. It might not be comfortable. Your skin might crawl. You might feel antsy. But you're doing it. You're able to sit there in the silence for those few seconds or minutes. And then... Over time, you increase it a little each session until you get to a place where you do feel comfortable with the quiet and you start to crave it is what happens. You start to crave those times with yourself where you can hear your inner wisdom, where you can get that clarity that we all crave about what we want and what we need and which direction we want to go and what our priorities are. And what we feel our purpose right now in the moment is, what really excites us, what work do we want to do, what rest do we need. So start small and build that trust with yourself that you can do it. And eventually your inner voice is going to become clearer and clearer and it's going to become something that you look forward to. Now, if you don't like just sitting in the quiet or laying in the quiet, some other ways that you can get this quiet time that might be helpful if you tend to be a person whose body moves a lot, um, having your morning coffee without distractions. So instead of reaching for a newspaper or a magazine or a book or your phone or some other device, just allowing yourself to use your senses as you drink your coffee and just sit in the quiet. Make it a morning ritual to enjoy your wake-up juice while being in the quiet. It's a beautiful way to start your day by working on your relationship with yourself. Another thing that I've started doing is when I'm in the passenger seat of a car, when Kevin is driving and when we're not actively having a conversation as a family, I just look out the window. I allow myself to sit with the quiet. I look out the window 
I take in the scenery. And that can also act as a mindfulness practice. And the last thing I would suggest is set a time. So for those of us who are worried that we're going to get lost in the depth of our emotions and that we're never going to come out again. What I like to do, especially with really big, confusing emotions, and I did this a lot for years, I'm going to say probably four or five years, is I would set a time aside for my depression when I would feel it thoroughly. I couldn't function when I was clinically depressed. I couldn't do my work, and I owned a business at the time, a wedding photography business. I couldn't do my work, take care of my toddler, um, you know, maintain a relationship with my husband who was deployed over to Qatar. I, I couldn't do all of these things while feeling through all of the emotions that were part of the clinical depression. And so one of the things that my therapist recommended was setting aside a time each night where I would sit and feel, like allow myself to fully open up and feel. And I started small here too. So I had a designated time at night because I didn't want it to ruin my whole day. I still, I was so afraid I was going to get stuck in depression again where I wasn't functioning. So throughout the day, I could numb if I needed to, just so I could get through the day, take care of kids, do what I needed to. So, you know, I could choose consciously what my numbing was going to be and how long I was going to engage in it. And then at night, I would set aside time to feel all my sad feelings, to listen to the parts of me that felt shame, the parts of me that felt fear, the parts of me that felt guilt. And I would set aside a time to listen to those parts and care for them and do the work with the child parts of me and the adult parts of me that felt wounded. But it was too overwhelming to think about doing that all the time. So I set aside at first just five minutes. Like throughout the day when it would come up, I would be like, oh, I've set aside time for you later. I'll come back to you later. I will be listening to you at 7 p.m. tonight. And I would sit down for five minutes, put my hands on my heart and say, okay, I'm here. Like I'm wide open. And when I first started, I didn't know about internal family systems But if I were doing the work now, what I would do is I would actually call on a part. So I would say, what is the part that was feeling shame earlier? Do you feel safe enough to come and talk to me? And I would allow that part to talk for five minutes or longer if I felt safe. If I wanted to continue the conversation, it's not like it's, oh, it's five minutes and that's all you get. But at the beginning, I would look for the parts or the feelings that were coming up. And I would talk to the feelings. So I personified the feelings and allowed them to talk to me. Now I see those feelings as a part of myself. And I characterize that part of myself that's bringing these feelings forward and ask it questions as a way to build a relationship with myself. But either way works. So I started with five minutes. Eventually I built up to like 30, 45 minutes where I would sit and feel through Now I don't need that long because I've processed through a lot of my stored baggage that I had before. Now a five-minute checkup is really all I need at night. Sometimes it's 10 or 15. When things are really overwhelming in the world, sometimes it's 10 or 15. There may be lots of emotions I really want to process through. 
but I don't need to numb throughout the day because I'm dealing with things as they come. I'm more aware of when I'm feeling emotions. I feel more confident feeling my emotions. And so there's not as much at night. It's mainly just a quick check-in of, is there anyone I missed today? Is there anyone that wanted to speak that I didn't get to speak to? The floor is yours. And I just wait and see if anything bubbles up. Some nights, nothing bubbles up. And other nights, I'll have one or two things that pop up and say, hey, this happened today. And we haven't dealt with that yet. And then we get to deal with it, figure out what we feel about it. I listen to the information, figure out what I want to do going forward. And then the emotion feels resolved and I can go to sleep peacefully that night. And I wake up feeling so much better now. I don't know about you, but I used to wake up feeling really weighted down. And looking back, I think I really was weighted down by the weight of the emotions I was carrying around. I was carrying around all of these unresolved emotions and I was waking up exhausted. Now I wake up much more energetically and I really do feel like it's because I'm not carrying around this huge invisible emotional weight. I've worked through a lot of that. And so that allows me to wake up unburdened ready for the next day. And I work through my emotions as they come up through the day for the most part. And at night, I check in with myself again. So remember, you're not going to get stuck if you feel like you're afraid to do the work. Find a trusted friend you can talk to or a therapist or a coach or a group session of some sort where you can be held where someone can be there holding the life raft for you while you dip your toe in the water, while you learn to swim in the ocean of emotions. Start small. Set yourself up for success. And set time limits for big, difficult emotions. Give yourself a set time to check in with yourself every night. Make it as long or as short as you want, but again, set yourself up for success. If you're worried you're going to be swallowed by depression like I was, set a short time window and show yourself that A, you're going to show up for yourself like you said you would, and that B, you can sit with your depression without it overwhelming you. You're allowed to sit with it and set boundaries with it and say, I'm giving you five minutes to talk to me, but then I need to care for myself again. And if you're feeling clinical depression, please get a therapist. They can hold you in ways that you're not able to hold yourself at the time. When you're in clinical depression, it's very difficult to give yourself compassion. Allow someone else to hold safe space for you while you're learning to hold safe space for yourself. I think sometimes I look back 12 years ago. 12 years is a long time. And I think sometimes, sometimes I probably confuse things I was doing two years into my healing journey with things that happened at the very beginning, because that's what happens with our memories. They condense sometimes when long periods of time have passed, they condense. So if you're finding you can't hold space for yourself, see if you can do it in session with a therapist there with you. Can you hold space for your emotions when someone's holding your hand and making it safer to do that? Can they allow you to practice in their office? 
And as you practice, you build trust with yourself so that you can do it at home on your own so that eventually you're not carrying around that huge emotional burden. I think that is it for today. And speaking of listening to yourself, I was just in Texas for an entire week. I got to float around in my mother's backyard pool and look at the stars in the quiet while I listened to the cicadas and the crickets and the frogs. And I heard my inner wisdom cry out, not just say, but like cry out, I need a break. I need some time to like process without researching, without creating a podcast, and I just need a couple of weeks. So I'm going to take a two-week hiatus. I will see you again the last week of July. I'm going to give myself two weeks to just rest and enjoy the quiet and let my mind be quiet because I feel like there's something that's wanting to come up to the surface, but I need to stop researching and I need to stop pushing forward with a podcast just for a little bit. I'm not feeling like I need a huge break, but I am needing a little break. So I'm going to take a two-week hiatus and I will be back on July 31st and we will kick off right before the school year starts um, with lots of great new ideas. Some of you have been messaging me over the summer and so we're going to have this like fun mishmash of episodes coming up. Some of you have requested episodes on covert narcissism and how religion creates a safe haven for covert narcissists. We'll be covering that. We're going to be covering some issues that have to do with misogyny and the patriarchy. We're also going to be covering some things about sexual health and about pleasure. We're going to be covering lots of good things coming up. And I can't wait. I can't wait to discuss all of this with you. So thank you so much for being with me on the first half of this year's journey. I'm going to go get some sunshine, some pool time, create some memories with my kids, and I will see you on July 31st.